How do we choose our identities? What is the homeland? Is it the place we are born in, where we spent our childhood? Or is it some land far away where our ancestors held from? More importantly, how do we understand the nostalgia for a homeland we do not know nor have lived in? I am joined today by Michigan-born actress and screenplay writer Heather Raffo, the writer and solo performer of the off-Broadway hit Nine Parts that was inspired by her visits and interaction with women from her father's native land of Iraq. Heather recently revived her role, or nine roles, in Nine Parts in an independent movie that is currently streaming on PBS. You are listening to The Lead, the New Lines Magazine podcast. My name is Rashad Aqidi. I am the Deputy Middle East Editor at New Lines Magazine. I'm here today with Heather Raffo. Thank you so much for joining us. I know you had a very busy uh, week and uh, you were just in the White House. Heather literally came from the White House to New Lines Magazine to record this podcast. So thank you so much. It's my absolute pleasure to be here. Thank you for having me. So my first question is, tell us about Heather Raffo the human, the American, and the Iraqi. Yeah, I'm, um, I'm, I'm an artist. I identify as an artist. I've been making um, theater um, for over 30 years. I was born and raised in Michigan. My dad was an immigrant from Iraq. He was born in Mosul and had moved to Baghdad to go to university. Representing Mosul, as I, we always do. It's so nice to be here with another Muslawi. <laughs> Um, and when my dad went to university, he ended up moving his entire family from Mosul to Baghdad. So that was his nine brothers and sisters, his parents, they all ended up moving to Baghdad. Um, and my father was the only one to leave Iraq. He, um, came to the United States for his master's, met my mother, who is, um, a Michigander of German and Irish descent, but, um, um, has been a Michigander all her life. So I, I grew up in Michigan again with an immigrant father, but feeling I didn't in my early childhood, I didn't feel I had a torn identity at all. I felt part of the fabric of this nation. Um, I felt very Michigan Mm -hmm. and it was really what has come to define me as an artist and what has come to define my identity really started with the first Iraq war okay. in the 1990s, because mm-hmm. I was 20 years old. And I had my first big loss of innocence of understanding what war was and what um, my nation, the United States, was, and um, worrying about family in Iraq during that war. And that's a a tender age to kind of have a loss of innocence and really have to come to terms with a different kind of politics and nationalism than what I thought I grew up with. It was also a time where um, people were watching the war on TV. And of course, studying war, studying World War II, studying wars in school, I thought, oh, well, the nation will, if we were to go to war, the nation would stop. Yeah we would stop, we would, that we would have to come together, we would have to deal with this national tragedy. And none of that happened. The nation didn't stop. People were watching it on TV and cheering. Um, So that was my big wake up call to um, knowing that I carried um, stories of Iraqis as human beings and stories of culture that was ancient. Um, and realizing that I wanted to take action, didn't quite know how. But then I would say the other thing that really changed my life was um, after I'd graduated from university, I was at University of Michigan, um, I went to Iraq. Okay. What so year was that? That was 1993. So I had been in 1974 when yeah. I was four years old. Yeah. Um, and I carried with me from four years old, I don't know how, I carried, probably because it was so different than my life in Michigan, I carried um, a profound sense of love for my family and the culture. Mm -hmm. And this is obviously what 
a child knows. Like it was, oh my gosh, you can sleep on the rooftops yes. under the stars yeah. and everybody stays awake far into the night and you eat ruggy and gymne, you know, like so you're- Ruggy is the watermelon. watermelon, the Baghdadi way of pronouncing watermelon. And just, you know, it's staying up late and watching my uncles play dominoes and running around with my cousins. I mean, to, to go from a kind of um, small Michigan family to over a hundred relatives <laughs> was like, it's like from, from a four-year-old point of view, it's like being in a party all the time, right? Everything was a party. So I, I carried that festive joy. Um, but in 1993, I, I got to return as a grown-up. I was 23 years old and I went by myself. I wasn't, wasn't a family trip. Um, and I got to meet my cousins and my aunts and uncles from a very different perspective. And I saw the consequences of the this U.S. Was under war. The sanctions too, like it was peak sanctions in 93. It was peak sanctions time. And um, I kind of had to sneak in, as it were. I mean, it wasn't, you know, the United States government made it very clear that if anything were to be happening to you in Iraq at that time, you're on your own. <laughs> Okay. Right. Can I ask how you snuck in, or is that like still secret? Yeah. Yeah. No. It's and I. I mean, I. I. It, it wasn't. It wasn't illegal. Yeah. It was just not sanctioned yeah. to sneak it. You know. But I. You just had my passport stamped on a extra piece of paper, not yeah. in the passport, just so that it wouldn't. Yeah. Raise flags, and lots of people were doing it, but. Yeah. But basically, you, we couldn't fly into Iraq, so you had to take the bus across the desert from Amman into Baghdad. And that was quite a journey. And I had to come out. I went in with my cousin, but I also had to come out on my own. And the bus got confiscated on the oh, route no. out because the bus driver was smuggling tobacco <laughs> or something underneath the bus. So it, like, it, it wasn't, it wasn't an easy journey for a 23 year old blonde kid in the middle of the desert. But, um, the, the kindness of Iraqis was everywhere at that time. And the thing that I still carry with me is when I said my Baba, my father was Iraqi, they said I was their daughter. Yeah. Yeah. That Literally. And though. when I arrived on my, my first foot, I stepped into the country on the border in the desert all the Iraqis from the bus were in one line to get their passport stamps. And I had to go into a back room and I was like, what's, I don't know what's, you know, should I be scared? Should I not? And the person who was in charge got up from his desk, walked across the room to shake my hand, to say, welcome to your father's country. Yeah. And to say, I hope you take back a good impression. And he said, no, that our people are not our government. Yeah. And he says, tell your people about us. That's so risky in that year in particular in to 93? say that. It shows you how Iraqis were, were one thing and, and Saddam and it was a completely other, other thing. And I took that with me. I mean, I was 23. I had no idea I was going to become a writer. I had no idea I would what I was going to do with the stories that I would gather. I just thought I was going to see family. But now looking back after, you know, 30 years as an artist, I can see that, you know, what, what he said, I wish I could tell him what he said became true. I, I made a point of telling, you know, American citizens about Iraqi citizens mm -hmm. and sharing very personal stories. Yeah. And I assume that's, uh, you know, that takes us to the, the second, the next part mm. or my next part of my question, you chose to tell these stories a you started in writing and mm -hmm. then you decided to do theater, but you'd kind of chosen an artistic platform mm -hmm. to to reflect these stories. How did you first get into the art scene? And uh, you, you talk about yourself identifying as an artist and an artist from Michigan, too. Mm -hmm. When you decided to go into the art scene, was the Iraq story like a priority for you or were you going to perhaps reflect on other stories, too? Well, I started as an as an actor doing theater because that was just my first love. I knew I wanted to be an artist of some variety. I think I didn't I didn't have the musical abilities or any other. You know, I just had to do, <laughs> go with what I had, right? Um, and I loved working on stage because you are live with your audience, and so the you feel the direct impact, right, of working 
working life. So that, so that was my undergraduate studies were in English literature and in theater. And then I went and got my master's, my MFA in theater, um, and then moved to New York and have been in New York now for 30 years. Um, so I started as an actor and I really thought that was going to be my whole career. And when I started, there was not a genre of Middle Eastern American theater. And there was absolutely not a single play in the English language that featured an Iraqi female protagonist. So going into the theater, it was not, I was not going to be an Arab American or Iraqi American working in the theater. I was just an American mm -hmm. doing plays. I mean, I was studying Shakespeare and Chekhov and doing, doing plays, right? Um, but in my grad school, um, I started writing this was in 1998. I started writing um, a play about Iraq in monologue form that would eventually become Nine Parts of Desire, and that was it. Was really just an exercise. It was a, how do you give? How do you create a thesis project for actors? And so it was see if they can create their their own show, right? But um, again, because there wasn't a genre in the American theater, nobody thought it was viable. Nobody thought this was going to become what the American theater, part of the canon of what they would do. And it wasn't until 9-11 happened that theaters across the nation um, were started to pay more attention to artists that self-identified with Middle Eastern heritage. And I was already working on what would become Nine Parts of Desire at that time. Um, and I felt, I felt very strongly that we would be in another war in Iraq. And I was trying to get this information out to the public before that. So I, I, I can't say that I dreamed of being a writer. I can't say that I ever intended it. I wanted to be an actor and I, I, I was driven to be a writer just for the times, just because it, it didn't exist. If the material existed somewhere, I would have just performed it. Okay. It didn't exist. So I had, I had to create it. Yeah. And in the midst of creating it, um, every door was closed to me. Mm -hmm. I can't tell you, I mean, nine parts of desire was written. It was, um, you know, late 2002, early 2003, and then directly after the war started in 2003, I had a play about Iraq, about Iraqis, and nearly every theater across the nation turned it down. And I'm saying they turned it down even for a reading, not for a full production. I'm just, they turned it down. It was a dangerous time. Nobody wanted to be humanizing Iraqis. And this is, I mean, the American theater is a very liberal institution. So if they were afraid, yeah. <laughs> then I'm like, what is going on with my nation? Like, where, who's, where is the bravery of what it takes to speak out against what's going on? So this was a, a seriously uphill battle. It had to open in England first, actually in Edinburgh. It was at the Edinburgh Fringe Festival at the Traverse Theatre, and then it moved to the Off West End in London. And because it got some traction there, I was able to kind of knock down some doors in New York, but even then it took another full year and there was only one producer willing to produce it. Once it was on stage, um, luckily the press, the New York Times, the New Yorker, like very, very big national press um, were gave it such rave reviews and got behind it in such a big way that theaters across the nation realized it would be, I guess, safe enough yeah. to produce. And um, then it's had, it's kind of been playing ever since. Now it's been done in colleges across the nation. It's had international productions. It ran off Broadway for nine months. And through every step of the way, I would say that the audience reactions are that they appreciate that it's a complex view of Iraq that it's not pandering to any particular side, um, that it's told from the female point of view and that it's so deeply humanizing. Yep. So tell us um, what inspired the characters of Nine Parts of Desire, the play, and how did you write these characters? How, how did you bring them to life in detail? Tell us a little summary about the play itself. Yeah, the play details the lives of nine ordinary and extraordinary Iraqi women. Um, 
I would say that the the basis of inspiration for them were women that I met in Iraq in 2003. Um, what inspired me the most of the Iraqi women I met was their incredible um, res resilience and their desire for life. So while they had experienced incredible tragedies and traumas, their um, passion and what they wanted to communicate about was, was um, hopeful and full of life. And they, they never played the victim. Okay. And I think that there was um, a stereotype in the United States that is not even worth mentioning, but is Iraqi women are veiled or they're oppressed or they're, you know, yeah, orientalist, and, perspective, orientalist yeah. perspectives. And to have such um, strong, fierce, exciting women um, was really rearranged the American brain. Yeah. in a great way. But then what, you know, that's, so that was the premise where I started, but I this also, is, sorry, were these the women you met in, you said 2003 or were they, were they were, they started with women I met in 2003, but then, um, no, I'm sorry. It started with women I met in 1993. 1993. Yeah, yes. 93, in yeah. Iraq. Okay. Um, but what I, then once I started writing in 1998, yeah. I went, I actually went in pursuit of other Iraqi women to tell me their stories okay. between 98 and 2003 okay. as I was writing. Um, and I met people working diasporic communities in London and New York. Um, and ultimately my reflection is that actually what I was doing was preparing for this play all my life, right? Oh, that's beautiful. I was talking to every Iraqi yeah. I could get to talk to me. You were ready. You were well, ready no, I mean, it's, for the play. <laughs> growing up in Michigan with a father who was very reticent to tell his story, right? He's a man of few words. So I was any Iraqi I could get my hands on. I was like, tell me, tell me about culture. Tell me about your family. Tell me about how you got here. So and I realized all those stories were building up with me mm. over decades. And so many of those snippets of stories ended up in the play. And I think what's what's very interesting as I reflect now is that um, Iraqi women will say they found the play and they read it and they've read it to their mother in the bedroom with the door closed. <laughs> right? That, and I'm realizing it's it's taken me a while to realize that I served I served a good purpose. Yeah. Meaning I was American, but I was also half Iraqi. So the half Iraqi part's what got me in the room. Mm -hmm. They wanted to feed me. They wanted to give me tea. They wanted to share beautiful things of their culture, right? But it was the American part that made them tell me the secrets that they might not tell their sister. Because I wouldn't judge them. I wasn't carrying a cultural pressure. Right. And also I was somebody that was willing to be as vulnerable about my own life and past as I was asking them to be with me. So the the kind of level of sharing that it took to get the stories of Nine Parts of Desire was months and months of sharing intimately. And like you Can have you to kind a, of love people. Yeah. Could you give us a, just a, an example of one of the stories when we talk about the the secrets, the intimacy from yeah. From the play. I'll give you a story. So there's a character named Huda in the play who's basically an, a communist who had survived um, being in prison and fled and was living in exile in London. And when I first met her, I went asking about an Iraqi artist that I was trying to find out, you know, details of. And I knew that um, this one had been a a sculptor. So I said, "Did you have you did you ever meet this artist? Did you ever know her?" And she's like, "Okay, I met her and was starting to talk to me." But then she started grilling me about my politics mm. and everything. And about, we, talk, we ended up talking for four or five hours. And she was very generous. She was feeding me. She was doing all the proper Iraqi things to, you know, welcome me into her home. But then there was this clear moment where she's like, great, now we're going to go visit my art studio. And I go there. And there's her two colleagues that, are, that also use this art studio, also Iraqi. And we walk in and she introduces me. And then she says, I thought Heather was a spy. 
She's here she comes asking all these questions. I thought she was a spy, but I know she's not. And then proceeded this like, I don't, we were up till four in the morning in the art studio with all the, and then they, they had told me that, you know, about their time in Iraqi prisons, they were communists, they were protesting the government, right? And just the intensity with which they shared details of their experience was quite amazing. But she also kind of took me under her wing and I mean, ended up living with her for two months and sharing my own stories and her story. Like it, it, it took that much mm. to feel like I really understood the complexity of who she was. She was married to a very famous Iraqi poet um, who had passed away. And I think that she was ready to tell her story after losing him. Right. So, so it's that kind of ways that these stories developed. Um, yeah. You needed the, an icebreaker. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You and, that icebreaker. It, and each with, with each person I would talk to, the icebreaker would come at a, at a different moment mm -hmm. for a different reason, but it often would come. And, and again, that the treasure I feel in carrying that play was that um, I was entrusted with the stories, but I also think having, having an American perspective, like just sitting outside the material, having that much of a distance did two things. A, I was able to, I was able to write something that could communicate directly with a Western audience, right? Which was an audience that needed to hear the material the most. Um, but it was also a play that didn't, the stories were free from the weight of being an Iraqi having to tell them and carry the cultural pressure or even the fear of retaliation. And I think those, those things are huge. I don't Absolutely. think an Iraqi in Iraq would have felt Absolutely. comfortable writing that kind of piece. Yeah. yeah. And, you know, even, even now after 2003 and after the you know, relevant freedom. Um, and I, I, as an Iraqi and as, as an Iraqi based in the United States, where many Iraqis also assume that I have a U.S. passport or I'm part American, uh, when they speak to me, um, I get stories from them with more detail. They're, they feel more comfortable, especially the personal stuff, as you're referring to. Whereas when they, the same Iraqis or similar Iraqis I would talk to when I was based in the UAE, and they would figure I'm an Iraqi living in a Middle Eastern nation, mm -hmm another Middle Eastern state, were very different. They were more cautious. There's the element of the word aib, which is shame, basically. Mm -hmm. um, and it is judgment. And uh, I've always asked myself that question, is that we tend, Iraqis are harsh on each other, but we're very welcoming to, to guests and to, to, to strangers. And uh, I don't think it's necessarily like, a, I, don't, I don't think it's, it's that complex. I just think that even though we're from the same country, sometimes we fear one another. Mm -hmm. And this is the d distrust that was installed in us from decades of dictatorship, uh, that we just don't trust each other. We, we assume the other Iraqi is going to judge us. Sometimes I feel that even in diaspora Iraqi mm -hmm. communities, mm -hmm. it's kind of hard to, to break that ice. But once it's broken, it's absolute chaos. We're all over <laughs> the place. Yeah. yeah, we trust each other perhaps too much. <laughs> I feel that's that's been my experience and it kind of resonated with, with what you were just saying you, you just you, you mentioned something very interesting that you you also had an american perspective and you had been to iraq in 93 and you were very invested in the story you were also open-minded enough to anticipate a different stereotype something different from the stereotypes but still were you were you as an american uh were you surprised did it did it kind of take you by surprise how iraqis really are when you visited in 93 and when you found out the stories later from 98 to 2003, did anything surprise you or were you like, oh, I know Iraqis. Of course they, they did this. Of course she went through that. Of course this woman, you know, struggled and found her way and, and you know, reflecting in the characters. But did any character really surprise you and say, okay, this is not what I expected? Again, from like a pure yeah, American perspective. Yeah, no, a, f a number of things surprised me. I mean... It always surprised me how the Iraqi women I talked to refused to see themselves as victims. And that was really surprising. Um, what surprised me at certain moments of the journey, 
particularly in 1993, was how generous Iraqis were with by not judging me for being American. They were still, in 1993, which is before the second war, yeah. invasion by America, before that, there was that sense that the American government um, was different from the American people. And I think 2003, the war in 2003, especially the re-election of Bush in 2004 changed that perspective. And there, that really was, oh, the American people want this. That's but, so true. But prior to that, I was, I was blown away by the generosity of being open to me. The other thing that surprised me, um, when I met the character that is, um, when I met the real life woman who the character of Khuda is, is based on was, um, how pro-war she was. Um, that shocked me because I thought, well, you can be anti-Saddam or you can be a lot of things, but being pro-war is, um, is particular and I'm not sure that's going to end well. Yeah. <laughs> right. Um, but her opinion at the time was that the brutality and the chaos that was, that had so transfixed Iraq was worth, or, or that the, the potential chaos mm -hmm. from breaking open the brutality of of that of the Saddam regime was worth was worth it mm. to see what could come of it, and um, that shocked me. Yeah. It shocked me to to listen and continue to listen to the complexity of her argument. Um, I can't say that I ever I I never changed my mind, yeah. but but that was something that shocked me. And that's we were we discussed this often at the magazine um, about when we convey stories from the Middle East, from which perspective to look at it. And there's an American centric perspective that's usually always very anti-war and it mostly comes mm -hmm. from a good place. But sometimes unintentionally, it tends to erase the other, deny agency for the people concerned with this with this issue, the Iraq, Iraq war for one example. So in most cases, people would not listen to someone like the character you mentioned, like mm -hmm. Huda's character. They mm -hmm. would not listen to her. She would be accused of being anti-war, pro-Bush, mm -hmm. God knows, neo neocon, mm -hmm. God knows what else. Mm -hmm. And her argument would be completely dismissed. You don't, you did not agree with her, but you still conveyed her story. Uh, you still told her story and, and you're still telling it now um, as a, a complex issue, something that can't be answered, not a yes or no question. Mm -hmm. This is a complex issue as to mm -hmm. why she supported, on what grounds did she base her argument? And we we don't have these discussions even in policy circles. So sometimes I think through, um, through art, through plays, through cinema, it's very, very important to listen to them and uh, not denying agency for individuals. The mm -hmm. Iraq and the US invasion of Iraq, the war, toppling of the regime, it's just so, so much more complicated than simple. Should we have or should we have not? Is life better before or after? Mm -hmm. I can no longer answer these questions. And I'm so happy when I was watching, um, when I was watching this and reading more about your work, I was so happy that someone else finally mm -hmm. is saying, okay, this is not a yes or no question. If we're going to delve into this at all, we need to look at it as a very, very open, mm -hmm. with a very open mindset and anticipate so many arguments, many that we don't agree with. Um, and thank you for that, I guess. Thank you so much for that. And I, I think that that's, that is kind of changing. The way we talk about the Iraq war now is very different than we did before. Um, the yes or no questions are not as common, especially this year. There were a lot of interesting arguments coming in from people inside Iraq, outside Iraq, people that go back and forth. And uh, it's, it's, one thing that was different with there was more humanizing of Iraqis as complex human beings with lives and feelings and stories, not just numbers and statistics, and not just people who happen to be living on this land that the U.S. decided to occupy, and definitely not just the regime and not just mm -hmm. not just Saddam. So I'm going to go to your next project, mm -hmm. and this one is directly related to the invasion and perhaps one of the darkest parts 
of the U.S. invasion and one that had such a rippling effect on Iraqi security up until today, and that is uh, Fallujah. Mm-hmm. Tell us about your play, Fallujah, the opera. Fallujah was um, a commission to um, tell the story of a real-life Marine who had served in the battles of Fallujah. And um, I was um, torn if I would be the right person to author that. Um, I was not I was not pro-military or pro-invasion, and I wanted to make sure that, you know, in in telling the story that that they would know where where I stood. Um, and at the time that I was asked to write the story of this real life marine, he had penned, um, he had was was hoping to tell a story of a marine who died in battle saving an Iraqi boy. And um, I listened deeply to the story that he wanted to tell, but then I also listened deeply to his story. And his story was that he returned home alive and had had five suicide attempts since coming home. Mm -hmm. And I said, I think that's your story. Um, Your story is that um, it's harder to be alive than to have died a hero. And so tell me about what happened in Fallujah, (laughs) right? And so um, we had a pretty um, intimate and very, hopefully with some healing parts of our journey communicating with each other. And I, I used the same um, open heart and tools I had used with all the Iraqi women I talked to. I, I listened deeply and shared vulnerably of myself. Um, and we spent, you know, we spent a whole week talking almost 10 hours a day. And I went away and let that story live inside of me and then wrote Fallujah, which was about, um, I, I say it's more, it's more than a story about this particular Marine with PTSD, because I think PTSD is, is, doesn't quite capture um, what he spoke about. What he really spoke about was moral injury. And moral injury is defined as, you know, y- your nation or your leader or you know your sergeant is sanctioning you to do something that you know in your morals yeah conscience heart conscience yeah. is wrong. is is wrong yeah. so you can have ptsd without moral injury you can come home from a war and be physically traumatized but um this this was a matter of conscience and um And I also knew that he wanted to live because if you're a Marine and you've had five suicide attempts, they're they're attempts at life, right? Because you know how to kill yourself if you really want to kill yourself. So I I knew how he was struggling for life. And that just felt true and it felt honest and it felt like it had so much to say to our nation at that time because Um, The United States at that time was not acknowledging that we had lost more men and women, service men and women, to suicide than we'd ever lost in the war. And that is a profound concept. So what happened? (laughs) What happened in that war that so many are coming home, that more are committing suicide than were lost in battle? Um, And it took this opera, we started writing in 2010. I started writing in 2010. Obviously, operas take a long time. The composer, all the workshops, like it was was a beautiful process, but it literally took until 2016 for it to have a world premiere. And I think, I I know for a fact, it took that long because it took that long for the, um, the national mood to change. And the national mood prior to 2016, and even in 2014, was they hadn't, the national mood was not that the Iraq war was a mistake or was wrong. It was still being defended. By 2015, in military, in military circles, it was being spoken of as a mistake. Right. And it really was a turning point when U.S. top military would say, "Okay, this war, that wasn't a great idea. That was a mistake that, you know, like, but but 
that was not happening for a number of years. And I, I so appreciate your perspective that, you know, so many, so many Americans are, are, will say from that they were against the war, but that was not true for such a long time. Yeah, actually, there might be a lot of liberals or a lot of people who were protesting, but I mean, the even amongst the liberal communities, it was years and years it of took people. ISIS. It took ISIS it took taking ISIS. over one third of the country to realizing that the Iraqi army had completely collapsed within minutes. That what have we been doing? Yeah. You've done nothing, and that's that was the the waking call. It took ISIS and a genocide and losing so much relics and heritage and history, especially in Mosul. And I, it, we have a, a special connection to mm -hmm. Mosul. It took that for Americans to realize, okay, maybe this war was a mistake or maybe we didn't plan it well enough that long, 12 years. Or maybe we instigated it. That too, yeah. That the, yeah. the invasion was caused this rebellion. Well, I mean, it's, yeah, there's a, yeah. It, whether it was conscious or unconscious or just a series of mistakes. I mean, the US, can't not take some responsibility, right? Yeah, that, no, it's true. And I feel that in their minds, these military leaders, uh, when they said, okay, this, they were implying that this war was a mistake. And then uh, there was a very national kind of rhetoric, especially with the, you know, 1215, 1216 campaign mm -hmm. by former President Donald Trump, that the war was a mistake. We mm -hmm. began hearing mm -hmm. that, yes, this, the invasion was a mistake and some, some different or camps that were usually at odds mm -hmm. um, kind of united. And we kind of saw the collapse of the neoconservative narrative of mm -hmm. going invading a country and imposing democracy. That's no longer a thing. No one really believes in it. But mm -hmm. it was that starting point. Like you said, it was 2015 was was when it started um, when it started to change. Mm -hmm. So about about Fallujah, how was the reception among um, the Iraqi community that you were now close with when they would when they saw that and when they heard um, that a Marine's perspective, did they listen to, or did they have a different reaction well, to it? Yeah, no, I, 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 um, I made sure that there were Iraqi characters represented in the piece and represented in a, in a full way. Um, and I think that they, the Iraqis were, um, moved and discombobulated in a way to see how, how how complex a marine story could be coming back mm -hmm. from that war. So, um, but I also think that its particular power was with U.S. military servicemen and women that um, unanimously were not speaking about their experience either with suicide or in battle. And so many veterans said that it was a, um, it was a moment that broke through for them and that they finally went home and told their families about their experiences in Iraq. And I think that that um, kind of conversation really is the beginning for healing and for you know knowing that your your people can be there for you like if you're carrying all that silently and iraqis know that as well as any they carry quite silently the many traumas and things they've had to experience so it was um it felt like a breakthrough for those reasons yeah and uh we go to nine parts now as a movie mm -hmm. um there's so many war movies the blockbusters yeah and uh they get some things right but the moment that you know they start speaking arabic and they you know that the stereotypes of how like iraqis or middle eastern people dress there's always a desert there's always a camel mm -hmm. there's always the you know sad violin music and uh the scorching heat when it gets to that at first it used to kind of upset me now it just it's just funny because it's so easy to actually go there and see that this is not the reality so your your um, adaptation, the movie adaptation of Nine Parts. Let's say it's, it did not have the two hundred million dollar budget, but most definitely not. <laughs> <laughs> but when you see these blockbuster films, how do you feel about it? And how is Nine Parts different? And what do you wish for in future? Because they're going to be 
a lot more war movies. I, I'm kind of surprised there's not there has not been this large production about ISIS yet. I think there's it's still in the works. I'm not looking You're forward terrifying to, me. <laughs> I'm not looking forward to that film. I can already see where it's going and and who's gonna be cast in it probably, and I'm not looking forward to it. But there have been movies on Afghanistan, uh, several yeah. movies on Iraq. Um what can these uh producers learn from nine parts? Well, I will make an exception to, to Mosul, the movie about the battle. That was actually I in my opinion, and I did write a piece about this for New Lines. It was it was I in my opinion well well produced. It was very realistic, but it it kind of looked like a war documentary. There wasn't drama. There, the dialogue, it was very different. It was just capturing how a certain platoon basically fought the battle against ISIS, but it was realistic. Uh, and um, I thought that one was decent. But what can what can movie producers, what can they learn hmm. from Nine Parts? And where do you... Where, Maybe where they need less of a budget. <laughs> <laughs> right? <laughs> That's true. Maybe, the, maybe it's just because honestly, when we were thinking like, how do you adapt the play nine parts of desire for film? Like that's the starting question, right? And if we had a, if we had a budget, big budget, it would have been nine actresses, each one playing one of these Iraqi women and each in their own environment, half of their own and most of those characters would have been based in the Middle East then. Right. There's one character in London and one in New York and all the rest would have been in Iraq. But because we didn't have that budget, the budget was um, it has to be one actor, me, <laughs> playing all <laughs> and it has to be pretty much one location. Right. Like so constraints can really help. But I mean, the the, the driving force behind that adaptation was um, it was covid times. The theater was on lockdown. I had an opportunity to make this movie of this play. And I had just lost my father. So I was very much watching um, my nation, the United States, going through things that I had seen Iraqis go through. And I, talking with my Arab friends, talking with my Middle Eastern friends, were the first to say, hey, this looks like the Middle East. Were Americans ever this divided? Were there ever militias in our government buildings? What's going on, right? So um, I just, I, I was in a swing state for most of COVID because my father had just passed and I was looking after my mom. My kids were doing literally school from my mother's basement. My husband works at the UN. His office was my mother's dining room table with my dad's urn on the other half. Like, I mean, we, we relocated and had to, to look after her. So I call it my swing state year, right? Um, and a much of the film adaptation came out of realizing that Americans knew loss in a more intimate way than they ever had before. When you try to get um, Americans to understand the level of loss that happened during the Iraq war, it's a number, it's huge, they can't. When COVID comes to every city, every community, every, every place, when it's over a million dead, when we've not lost that many to all our foreign wars combined, we're in a different psychological space. And loss is tragic, but it's also a, a moment of connection. Because it's close. To, it's close unlike the war that's over there, 7,000 yeah. miles away. This right. one was at home. So people's hearts, minds, bodies were in a different place. So I, I did a pretty radical adaptation of that play. It starts with the Iraqi American character um, arriving to the oldest Iraqi church in North America, which is a real place on the banks of the Flint River in Michigan, a swing state and she's going there to grieve her dad because she couldn't have a public funeral, which is this true for me. We couldn't bury my dad. We lost him in March, 2020. So this was, you know, wasn't summer 2020. This was March, 2020 where people were even afraid to touch dead bodies at that time. Right. So this character is arriving and each day she brings something of her dad. She brings his shoes or his worry beads. She brings flowers. She's building a memorial that's her own private memorial. And we see her in isolation the way so much of, and many of us during COVID were in isolation, right? Almost talking to ourselves, right? So she keeps arriving to the church um, 
And as she passes through the church, these other characters start talking to her as if they're in her mind or in her spirit or literally in the church. Maybe we don't know, right? Are they ghosts? And I'll say that very personally, that's how Nine Parts of the Play feels to me because I've spent so much time performing it. I feel like these women are both talking to me and living in me and a little bit outside me, but always, always holding me. And I thought ultimately like that their stories of loss and love and resilience and a nation divided had a lot to say in comfort and in community with Americans post 2020 and all that we're seeing our nation go through. So I want, I wanted my fellow Americans to feel the way I did. Like these women are here for you. These women have stories that you need to hear because they're going to support you. They're going to uplift you. They're going to show you the way through this. Um, so that adaptation follows that that character who, um, the American character, as these Iraqi women are talking to her and she doesn't hear them, she doesn't see them until that moment in the film where, oh gosh, is she, is she seeing them? Is she really hearing them? And you can see that they they have, in their speaking their stories, they got her to finally speak her story. And through that, she's able to mourn her dad. Um, so I get to tell the stories of nine, the women of Nine Parts of Desire through her through her grieving and through her giving voice to her own story. Um, and right now it's airing on PBS, Detroit PBS has it. Um, you can stream it on their website. And that's also an honor because Detroit is in the heart of the biggest Arab Middle Eastern population anywhere in the world outside the Middle East. Mm -hmm. But it's also in my home state in a swing state, huge Iraqi community, huge Iraqi community the biggest Chaldean community anywhere mm -hmm. in the world. So it's, it's, it's beautiful to have it stream there for all Americans, but to be um, uplifted yeah. by the Detroit PBS station. Um, yeah. Yeah. So nine parts is airing on, on PBS. It's streaming, I believe you said till the end of the month, but till the end of May, till the end of May. Perfect. So I would definitely encourage people to uh, to watch it. It's a beautiful, beautiful story. And Heather is in every single scene because she's the only actress, which is great. It's wonderful. It's definitely a different kind of definitely a different kind of film. And uh, the reception has been has been great. And uh, it, it was very different than what I thought I'd I'd watch. My my colleague, Rochelle Ost, she had recommended it and said, you need to get Heather to write something for us or you write something about her or no, just talk to her. And that's how the idea, and I'm so thankful that she did. Um, one last question, because like I said earlier in the podcast, you came here directly from the White House, it's Arab American month. And um, we talked earlier before recording about how the narrative was shifting, how 20 years ago, it, was, it would be hard to imagine being in the White House for Arab American month, but that's changing. Uh, how, what, how do you see the role of, of um, Arab American or Middle Eastern American artists in this narrative, in these shifting dynamics versus politicians, um, mm -hmm. Congress members, the role of art, movie, whether it's even theater, film, music in, in this shifting narrative. Because up until this moment, um, and this is someone, I mean, I, I am part of the diaspora, more of the recent diaspora, but I still, I still feel that Arab artists don't have that um, don't have mainstream appeal yet. We have shows like Mo and uh, different, you know, Rami. Rami and different music is kind of picking up, but it's still, we can't compare it to Latin music. We can't compare it to even Asian art yet. Uh, it's getting there. Where do you see the future and its role in shifting the, the, the narrative or the dynamic? Well, I can say we've been in, it's been 20 years in the theater and what has changed has been dramatic. I mean, uh, myself and other artists were at the forefront of the movement 20 years ago. And now stages across New York City and across the nation are doing plays by Middle Eastern artists. So it's, it's really tremendous. The work is incredible and it's diverse. Um, so, so it's 20 years worth of work that is, is flourishing now. Um, it doesn't mean there's not further to go, but it, it does mean that um, things are possible. And I would say my experience of um, 
of what is the Middle Eastern artists, Arab artists, they are helping define the cultural narrative for Americans, for the West, and they are the real bridge builders between the Middle East and the United States, right? Um, and they're uniquely positioned to hold complex stories of both sides and make them entertaining and get audiences across the board to um, feel, discuss, create conversations, right? And I think that they really are um, also the canaries in the coal mine when things are happening um, that need to be spoken about, often it's the artist that will understand that first. And so my kind of call to action right now for where we're at is that I really think um, Arab Americans and Middle Eastern Americans are some of the first to know what happens when a society that has um, been kind of nationally united for um, centuries, if not longer, um, suddenly dissolves into sectarian identities. And the United States is on a precipice and it's, an, it's no joke. Yeah. This, is a, this is a serious moment in the history of the United States. And so I really think the position of Middle Eastern Arab American populations to step up and step into that voice and, you know, really be the bridge builders in their community is profound and the time is now. Absolutely. And uh, one of the things I, I said when I first moved here, I moved here in 2018. So what you're talking about was right there. And I would listen to presidential speeches. I would listen to some arguments on social media. And I would, the first thing I would think about was, wow, this sounds so familiar. And I'm someone who grew up in a dictatorship. So when I say it sounds familiar, it's quite scary. It is quite scary. And uh, yeah, I, 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 I agree with this. And uh, I thought that was really interesting about, um, you said Middle Eastern American artists are the ones building the bridges because they get it, they understand, and they can make it entertaining. And this is the role of pop culture and art that mm -hmm. sometimes is overlooked, but it's mm -hmm. that element of entertainment. It makes it translatable without losing anything mm -hmm. in translation. You end up yeah, you can relate. You can mm -hmm. relate, and uh, it's it's expressed in that way. Have yeah, I, and I also see. I also it is entertaining. Yeah. I also see it. The job of the artist is to open the heart, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. And that's not necessarily the job of a politician or an academic, right? Mm -hmm. They're they're working in other mediums, but the mm -hmm. the artist is trying to get people to be moved. Different kind of persuasion. Yeah, the good one. Yeah. <laughs> Heather, it's been an honor. Thank you so much. I just want to say again that Heather is like sitting right across from me. So this podcast was a very personal, very intimate one. Um, please, please if, check out her movie, Nine Parts. It's streaming now on PBS till the end of May. Thank you again, Heather. Pleasure. Lovely being here.